Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast from Altos Research. This is the show where we talk to real estate industry insiders and experts about the trends shaping the market today. Enjoy the show. Mike Simonson here. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast. For three years now, we've been sharing the latest market data every week in our weekly Altos Research video series. With the Top of Mind podcast, we are looking to add some context to the discussion about what's happening in the market from leaders in the industry. Altos Research tracks every home for sale in the country every week. All the pricing, all the supply and demand, all the changes in that data, and we make it available to you before you see it in the traditional channels. People desperately need to know what's happening in the housing market right now. The market was frozen so solid last fall, and now surprisingly the landscape is is changing. So if you need to communicate about this market to your clients, your buyers and sellers, go to altosresearch.com and, and just book a free consult with our team. We'll review your local market and how you can use market data in your business with your buyers and sellers. Okay, let's get to the show. I have a terrific guest today, Gary Beasley. Gary is the CEO, co-founder of Roofstock, whose platform lets everyone from first-time investors to global asset managers evaluate, purchase, and own residential investment properties. Gary is a true pioneer in real estate technology, and he's one of the few people who has a longer history in this industry than I do. The track record, though, includes both Zip Realty and Starward Waypoint through IPOs, to the IPOs. Gary also served as CEO of Joie de Vivre Hospitality, the second largest boutique hotel management company in the country. Gary was named top 50 FinTech CEO and has been named to Housing Wire's HW Vanguard. So Gary, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Mike. I really appreciate uh, the time today, and you know this is this is great because we talk about the market, we talk about you know the where things are going in the market, and Roofstock as a uh, as an investment platform has a really unique position. So I'm interested in hearing you know a lot about Roofstock and what you see through it. But before we dive into all of the Roofstock things, I mentioned a little bit of the the tenure in real estate technology. Tell me about that journey. Let's start there. Yeah, well, Mike, I don't know if you remember the first time we met, but I think it was about 20 years ago when I was at Zip Realty and you were in our offices. It might, yes. It, wow, it might have been. I was just thinking about that a few minutes ago as we were getting on this call. But uh, yeah, so we were both both early uh, looking at housing. And uh, so I, I guess I would just say that I've spent a lot of my career at the intersection of technology and real estate, and I've I've had a focus on operationally intensive real estate, hospitality, single family rentals, where it's a kind of a combination of a real estate investment and an operating business. And because I think you can apply technology to a lot of those models and get some real leverage, um, and it's all also areas where innovation can really pay off. So I like to innovate, and uh, as uh, Mike mentioned, I was early in the single family rental space. So um, with some, some friends and I, we started buying homes during the downturn, the prior downturn, the great financial crisis. In about 2008, 2009, we started buying homes with our own money, friends and family money. We raised some funds and eventually some institutional capital 
formed Waypoint Homes. We were, I believe, the first platform to get to a thousand rental homes that we owned and managed. And that was in January. I remember it because it was in January of 2012. It was in the Wall Street Journal. Um, this, co this company's got a thousand homes. And then by the end of that quarter, uh, Invitation Homes, which was Blackstone, was buying a thousand homes a week. That was the beginning of the institutionalization. It took us, you know, four years to get to that thousand that we scraped together. And then it was, so those were really interesting times. And if you look, Mike's a data guy, prices declined for five years. And in the first quarter of 2012 is when home prices started to tick up again. And that was really when all the institutional capital started to flow in and effectively provided a floor. It did provide a floor for the housing market. And then it was, you know, off to the races from there. And so we built a REIT, you know, we, we took several thousand of these homes and put it in a vehicle, went public. And I was running that as a, as a CEO of that business and then left about 2015 to form Roofstock with the idea that, wow, this is pretty, this, this industry is going to continue to mature. We can talk about some of the characteristics of it if you're interested, but it's, it's a massive industry. Um, and didn't really have infrastructure for investors to, to buy, sell, and manage more efficiently. So that's what we built. I like to describe Roofstock really as kind of like we're providing real estate investment as a service for investors. So you can plug into us just like, you know, AWS or Amazon, you know, or um, any other cloud service, Salesforce, rent our platform and put money to work and we'll help you buy, sell, or manage. And then when you're done, you can unplug and and no harm, no foul, but it, it's a way that we could offer the best sort of tools, technology, data, team, insights to, to investors out there who don't need to necessarily be experts on their own or, or build their own infrastructure. You sort of rent ours. And so that's the basic business model. You know, we've been around for about eight years now. Um, we've done, you know, close to $6 billion of transactions, I guess, through the platform since we started. Uh, we manage about 17,000 houses for investors. Um, so, you know, we're pretty active in the space um, and we see a lot of a lot of the trends going on. And, and Mike, I'm a regular fan of your of your um, podcast and, you know, your, your um, regular broadcasts on the market. And it's very interesting because I, I try to listen to a lot of these and triangulate around them and to see what trends are. And so it's it's always useful. Although we're focused on the investor side, uh, we are, you know, we're still in housing. And so all the trends that are affecting the owner-occupied trades are, are very relevant to what investors are seeing and, and vice versa. Yeah, man, so many things to, to dive into there. One of the things that uh, you mentioned, so I didn't realize at the time, I remember Waypoint starting and, and building. Um, Waypoint was one of the few that were, was buying homes before the turn was obvious, you know, in, in the Altos data. So it, it, the, the, the housing market bottom, the, the, the common, the conventional uh, date is January of 2012. In the Altos data, we could see a turn in the first quarter of 2011. Uh, and it was the, of our lead with our leading indicators and in that we could, we could start to see the data turn there. And, uh, and one of the things that, um, and maybe we'll put a pin in this for later in the conversation, but one of the things I'm interested in is, is how, um, investors can be 
counter cyclical and because I watched so much of the money be pro cyclical. We watched the i buyers who were buying right up until the the prices were you know the demand fell out and then then they stopped and they haven't started yet again even so it, it takes a lot of conviction to be counter cyclical or you know a lot of people like to say they're contrarian they're only contrarian when there are other people being contrarian and then they're following those contrarians so it, it's really hard to be a thought leader and i remember in the early days um, we were buying these homes in the in the kind of far east bay pittsburgh antioch Vallejo, places like that, that back in the peak were, say, $400,000, and we were buying them for about $125,000. Whoa! Yeah, we were putting in twenty five grand, and we were getting a 10% net yield. And we were saying, what's wrong with this? What's wrong with this picture? The only thing we could find wrong with it was we weren't buying enough houses. I mean, that was literally it. We were like, is everyone else, are we crazy? Or is everyone else not seeing the obvious? Because... We said, we know we're buying houses that will recover at some point. They're generating incredible cash yields. By the way, no one can buy a house anymore, so everyone's renting. So we had waiting lists for these houses to rent. Um, no one had the capital to renovate them and make them livable, so we're buying all these homes and making them nice. The neighbors loved us. It was this virtuous cycle, right? And there was no financing available. There was no debt financing. It had to be on a you know house by house or full recourse basis for their banks wouldn't lend more than fifty percent on those rental homes at one hundred and twenty five thousand dollar one hundred and fifty thousand dollar value when they were lending ninety seven percent when they were worth four hundred. That's how crazy it was, right? And, and so you know we we just knew that was a good trade. We didn't know if we could create a company out of it, um, but we thought it's possible. And if we could figure out how to manage these at scale. We applied a lot of technology and business process automation, things like that back then for the underwriting and the management. And we were able to make a platform out of it. And we were one of the early folks to kind of scale a scattered site management operation. Then it was just for our own account. You know, since then, a lot of companies have done that. And now we're sort of doing the same thing at Roofstock. We've kind of rebuilt on, on newer technology, but we're offering it for third parties to use it instead of just you know for our own account. Yeah, that's uh, that's quite a journey, and wow, what um, what a uh, what a bunch of learnings in there. And and you know, I think it was not at all clear that you could do single family management at scale in a diverse environment compared to a concentrated real estate, you know, a concentrated apartment complex. And so that was a that was a a risk you took. It was a risk we took, and I can't tell you how many times. At conferences in the early days, people just thought we were crazy. There's no way you could manage these things efficiently. No way. And it was the apartment folks in particular who couldn't get their heads around. It's hard enough to manage an apartment building. But there are actually some advantages to the scattered site, I think, as you know. But you don't have any common area expenses like you have in apartments, which is kind of a nice thing. Uh, So you don't have pools and utilities and things like that that you have to uh, maintain and pay for. That's kind of a big deal. And then your turnover is about half as much as in apartments. So it costs you a little bit more when someone moves out, but it's a stickier resident. They tend to stay three or four years. And when you work through all those, you know, the math, it, it turns out that the, the operating margins are quite similar to apartments. 
That's great. Uh, before we move off of your, your history and, and into the future, um, let's talk about Zip Realty for just a quick sec. So Zip was the original internet-based real estate brokerage. And I can imagine the pitch deck at the time, you know, that was, as I like to say, two bubbles ago, right? And, uh, and maybe now we call it three bubbles ago. <laughs> so um, what did you learn at Zip that you've brought forward? Yeah, so I learned at Zip that, first of all, um, people craved information and data. And so we, we were really, I think, the first to put complete multi MLS data online. And there, were, there was a lot of controversy about that and how it should be done. Um, you know, the National Association of Realtors didn't like it very much. And this was like 1998, Maybe. Yeah, late 90s. Late 90s. And um, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's happened around that. We do a whole show on that. But at the end of the day, we were allowed to do it. We sort of were pioneers in what's called the virtual office website construct. So the idea that someone should be able to sit on their computer and see a listing as opposed to being handed a cut sheet in someone's office. It's impossible for people who didn't live through that to think that that was actually the case. But it used to be the case. Information then uh, creates, when, when people have more information, they have more power. So we empowered consumers. We had a discount commission structure. We actually had a rebate on, to the buy side. We rebated a portion of our commission to our buyer clients. People liked the service. The website was awesome. Um, we had a similar issue with Redfin, though, in that a lot of people use Redfin's um, website, but they don't use their agents. It just happens to be a phenomenal search tool, and then they'll use their their neighbor to represent them. And they say, thank you very much. We had a lot of that that happened, but that was okay. We, we, you know, we were, we were building a brand. Um, we had uh, over 2000 agents when I left, we were profitable. Um, we were public. As you mentioned, we took the company public. We we're purchased by Realogy ultimately. So it kind of got subsumed by Realogy. The brand sort of went away and they used some of the technology, but, but it, it ceased to exist as a standalone brokerage. But I learned, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of information out there on the resi side that wasn't put to use. I also learned it's kind of hard to reform an industry um, from within as opposed to coming at it with a totally different model. Because we were, you know, we were participating in the real estate space with a discount commission structure that people frankly didn't love um, because people kind of like their commissions the way they are. Thank you very much. And um, as opposed to at Roofstock, what we've done is we really sort of created our own marketplace. So, um, you know, so we've sort of, how do we bring buyers and sellers together um, directly? How do, how do we work with investors to, you know, build their own portfolios? And we do work with agents and brokers all over the place, but, but it's, we had to come at it with a very fresh mindset of how to build a business that wasn't necessarily just looking through the mold of an existing uh, construct and then tweak it around the edges. It was really, let's start with a whiteboard and say, okay, if we're going to build sort of a customer focused, customer centric model for investors, how would we build it? And that's, that's where we started. That is great. And so that's a great segue to uh, talking a little bit more about Roofstock. So Roofstock is a marketplace. You have sellers and buyers and marketplaces are awesome when they work. They're notoriously hard to jumpstart. You can't have the ghost town. You get buyers in there, but there's no sellers and you can't have sellers with no demand. So, so what, tell me about that. How did you jumpstart it? Yeah, it's a great 
observation. I, I was at a conference early on and somebody said, uh, marketplaces are so valuable, but they're so hard to start. But they're even harder to kill once you actually get them going <laughs> because they get those network effects. So I knew that I could get supply from a lot of the single family rental owners because there was no efficient way to sell houses with tenants in them back then. When we were selling homes from Waypoint from some of our early funds, the only way we could do it was to vacate it and sell it through the MLS. And there was a lot of leakage in terms of costs, not only for the commissions, but lost rent and CapEx to prepare it for MLS sale. So it still worked because the properties had appreciated so much, but we thought, well, gee, wouldn't it be great if we could sell the home with a tenant in place for a couple percent, not have to vacate it, um, you don't have to wait for the tenant to move out. You don't have all that friction. And um, we match, and we know there's buyers who would value the tenancy, whereas opposed to that tenant being a liability, the tenant was part of an asset. So I went to all the CEOs of the different companies. I said, hey, um, I'm going to start this marketplace. I need you to give me you know, 20 houses to sell, and I'm going to put them up and see if we can attract buyers. And that's how we got the first 100 listings. Just from Because I said, listen, if it works, I'm going to be in a great outlet for you to be able to get some liquidity without having to vacate the homes and I'm going to be really cheap and I'm going to have scale and drive it down. So selfishly, they, you know, I said, it's, it's in your best interest. It's in my best interest too, because I need supply. Then had to go build, build a, a website and a, and a process for buying homes sight unseen. No one had ever sold $200,000 items online before that you don't see, right? No one's ever heard of Roofstock. You're in Seattle, you're buying a home in Orlando, through some site, how do you build trust? And and so, um, one of our investors in the very early days uh, said, you know, to build a, a marketplace, the first thing you need to do is build trust. So think about this was Mark Benioff actually. Think about um, what you can do to build trust. And we came up with this idea of a thirty day money back guarantee. So we did that. So you could buy a house, um, and if you didn't like it for any reason, in thirty days we would essentially give you your money back. We'd buy it back for what you paid and then we would resell it and we would keep any profit or loss based on that. It seemed kind of crazy, but very few people took us up on it. But once we did that, people said, okay. It's like when you buy that airplane ticket and it's cancelable for a day. So we did that. We got the marketplace going. We started to build liquidity. What we realized was in the early days that marketplace was really interesting and useful, but we were... It, we were leaving a lot on the table by it being one and done. So investors would buy a home through us and then we'd pair them with a local property manager and we were done with the relationship essentially. And what we realized was we wanted to stay connected to the clients long-term. So we bought a property management company called Street Lane Homes and we kind of upgraded all the tech, integrated it in with Roofstock. And so now we have a full stack model where we, we can own the property management going forward as well. So then we have an ongoing relationship with the owners. We have, we can develop relationships with the residents in the homes. We collect all the data post sale so we can monitor the performance and that helps us with our, our underwriting engine. Um, so there's a lot of reasons to, to build this full stack platform. And so that's why I think we've really migrated. I think you correctly, noted that we really started as a marketplace, but we've sort of, the, the model has sort of expanded, if you will, into this kind of real estate, as full real estate as a service platform where the transactions are part of it. The buy side and the sell side transactions happen within this ecosystem, but 
We also have a big management business, both property and asset management, and a lot of data being analyzed. Yeah. Okay. So before we get into the data, with the, the observation, the interesting observation is there is that, you know, there have been a lot of people, and I know this because over the years they call me and they say, hey, I'm building an investor website where they can buy properties. And, you know, there have been a lot of people with that vision, but very few of them had like it was like only Gary could do this because Gary came out of Waypoint and had actually had the the ability to to fill the supply as you go out the door. It was a huge advantage, Mike. I mean, knowing so one having those relationships helped, but I think as important, if not more, was understanding how the industry worked. And so when we were raising capital for for the business, the fact that it's a huge addressable market is is important and critical. Um, the fact that we were an experienced founding team was really important and critical. But I would say the industry knowledge piece of how does this work, understanding investor pain points, having the you know, looking at things through an investor lens, and then building tools um, to address what we knew were pain points was probably the most important part of of getting our capital raised. And and um, you know, there's a lot of people who could build a great website and and. Put, put together a, a great kind of a PowerPoint deck, but to actually execute on it is hard. And if you come at something without any industry knowledge, the, the advantage is blank slate. You don't, you're not constrained by the way things are done. But I think that if you can know how things are done and still whiteboard it and say, I'm not constrained by the way things, but I know how they think. I know what the issues are. I understand the regulatory environment. I understand how um, what the constraints are. That's a huge enabler, and it really I think some of the more successful founders have enough of that industry knowledge and enough of the ability to to look beyond the way things are done and combine them together. Yeah, that's a real skill to know the rules well enough to choose which ones you're going to break. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. That's great. Okay. So you mentioned data and the data that you have and the data that you're learning. Let's talk about the unique view. What do you like have on the real estate market or maybe uh, for investors and the returns? Like what do you, what, what does Roofstock know that the rest of the world doesn't or should know or is maybe getting wrong? Yeah. Well, I don't know if there's an easy answer to that. You know, it, as you know, um, real estate is inherently local, and so it's hard to generalize about what's going on with the real estate market, which is one of the reasons I think your research is so useful, the way you, you go into different markets. But but generally, I think we can see trends, um, kind of like you, you pointed out, Mike, that you did back in the 2011, maybe a little bit earlier, uh, because we see what's happening with investor activity. We, we see investor buy boxes, for example, and a buy box would be, we've got an investor who says, I want to buy a property of this, this kind of yield in this type of market. Um, we see how adjuster, investors are adjusting their buy boxes in real time, for example. Okay. That's a great one. So, so tell me how, can you tell me a little bit about how uh, that buy box changed last year, beginning and end of last year and what it's looking like now? So I would say here, take a market like Phoenix is a good one because it's a, a lot of investor, just a lot of activity in general. So it's a little bit of a nice sort of microcosm. You know, if you if you go back to um, you know late twenty one, early twenty two, things are blowing and going. Um, 
you know, so kind of first quarter of, of 22, investors were buying, uh, let's call it uh, homes in Phoenix, a $250,000 home in Phoenix, that's sort of a 4% cap rate, capitalization rate. So that unlevered yield of 4%. They were able to borrow at 3% or less um, through warehouse lines or securitization. So there was meaningful, what we call positive leverage in, in that equation. Um, as rates started to go up, investor appetite, especially investors who, who um, relied heavily on leverage, um, started to become more cautious. And they said, hey, you know what? I need, a say, a five and a half cap rate because rates are kind of coming up and cresting 5%, you know, and I, I still would like to have accretive leverage. And so what they were saying is instead of paying a price that would get me a 4% yield, they would say, well, I need to pay 20% less. And, and, you know, however the math would work. And, um, and so, so what that did is it created, you know, houses were going, you know, they might've gone from 250 up to 300. And then all of a sudden they came back and, and then rents continued to go up. And then prices started to come down, at least from, you know, with rates going up and investors needing a higher yield. So it actually brought prices down to where they were before. And in some cases a bit below. Um, but rents have not necessarily come down. Rents have been stickier um, in a lot of those places. Now, there's more homes for rent now than there were, and we could talk about the implications of interest rates on renter demand, which I also think is interesting. It's also a positive, I think, for the single-family space longer term. But, um, but, but you know, we could see pretty early on uh, what was happening as rates were ticking up and how cap rate expectations were going up, that that was quickly going to turn into investors not being very active if rates continued to go up and Chairman Powell's vision was being, you know, uh, was working itself through. We knew at some point in 2022, things were going to grind to a halt, um, which they did, um, which they did. Now, Phoenix is a really interesting example. And, you know, again, things tend to happen a lot quicker today than they used to a decade ago. We're already seeing Phoenix sort of start to recover again. So, you know, and I think you've probably seen it in some of your data, um, but it uh, depends on the neighborhood and the price point, but areas where there was very uh, weak demand, we're now starting to see sort of some capitulation where sellers are, 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 um, are selling. There's a lot of, there's a, there's a shortage of inventory, is, which, which, is prop, which, which prevented prices from dropping very much. And then you have buyers who are somewhat fearful of rates going back up again, knowing they could always refinance, so they're pulling the trigger. And then you've got um, investor buyers who think, you know, the price has gotten low enough to where over the long term I still feel really good about the long-term growth prospects in this market. So, so the correction seems to be happening quicker, not multi-years like we saw back in the Great Recession a uh, great financial crisis. It was like a five-year correction where prices kind of went down. Um, and one of the things that I think you point out, Mike, in some of your stuff, and I follow the home price data, it's it's deceiving because year over year, it seems like prices are coming down, right? Because you're looking 12 months ago. But if you look to the prior month, the last couple of months, they've been ticking up. So it, it it's so it depends on how you interpret the data where the, the home prices are going down or they're going up. They're going up month over month, down year over year against very difficult comps. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so the buy box now 
is our investors saying, so prices went, that property went from 250 to 300 back to 250. And our investors now saying, well, I can, like, I can take a, a slightly worse cap rate. Yeah. There, so, so I would say um, it depends on the investor, uh, but generally um, if, if prices went down en- enough to say generate a 6% cap rate, then investors would buy everything. And still, like today, they buy everything. And, but today, you can't really buy much of the 6%. But it's also not at 5 either. It's kind of somewhere in between. And so if you see continued rent growth, even if you know prices stay flat, the yields go up, the way the math works, right? So um, you're not very far from it starting to make sense. There are buyers who are starting to buy without leverage. So they're less sensitive to the mortgage rates, insurance companies, for example, or family offices or, or high net worth investors who might pull money out of the stock market and say, you know what, I want to put a little bit more in property because I feel like it's stable. Um, it's, there's some tax advantages to you know having it in real estate versus the stock market. I'm worried about volatility in the stock market. And I'm just going to park it in some houses. So we're seeing more of that sort of stuff happening. Um, and then at some point, when rates inevitably come down again, a lot of these investors will put debt uh, on the property. At that point. Okay. And so so we can see some of the demand in, say, Phoenix, which which obviously recovered. And as you pointed out, put a floor on some of the prices. Um, so the demand there would, and would be likely less leverage dependent. The high leverage money isn't super active there right now. So I'd say there's there's fewer buyers in the market, less reliant on low cost leverage to justify their their purchases. But there's also, you know, not a lot of inventory either. So um, there's there's more inventory than than there was a year ago, but a lot less than there was, you know, in, in the past. Right. So we're well below that. So. Um, you know, I would say um, there's homes that are appropriately priced are are trading. Um, if and, you know, there's enough demand for the limited supply. I think for things to clear, the thing, the real challenge we have right now is with rates where they are. No one wants to give up their three percent mortgage to 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 sell. Uh, you know, to to move to for the benefit of taking on another six or 7% mortgage. So people are keeping those homes and renting them and whatever. And so that's keeping the supply to either forced sellers, really kind of forced sellers, um, uh, but the, the discretionary sort of move up or move down buyer sees no incentive to do that right now. And then the other supply issue is new construction. And a lot of the, we've got a, a shortage of, homes in the United States. And depending on which analysts you talk to, it's a big number. A lot of the projects that have been planned are now on ice because in this interest rate environment, these projects are not happening. And so it's going to create, you know, unfortunately, um, I think a shortage of supply over the medium to long term. We were just starting to catch up a little bit. And then now I think we're going to be behind again. For all those reasons, it's one of the reasons I'm fairly bullish on housing broadly and single family rental is there's there's a real I think floor on how and where prices can go just because of the supply constraints 
and um, there are enough pockets of demand to support uh, those prices, and I think over time, um, increasing prices. That's a that is a great synopsis. So you're broadly bullish on the sector over uh, the medium to longer term because of our structural shortage problems. I appreciate that uh, that. Insight. Um, let's talk about your your users, your 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 clients. As a real estate investor, how do I look at the market now, thinking about risks and opportunities, and what should I be thinking about? So, uh, one thing about real estate is very hard. Like with anything, it's very hard to call a bottom. And so, um, you know, I encourage people to um, think about their their time horizon if they're looking to do a quick flip. I think it's, it gets a little bit more challenging because it really matters when prices go up again. If you're looking to have a longer-term strategy of building a portfolio for you know some income or some you know ultimately appreciation and wealth creation, then I think buying through cycles, kind of like the whole dollar cost averaging approach in stocks, kind of makes sense to me. Um, you're, yes, prices could go down, kind of like I mentioned we did at Waypoint. We started buying in 2009 and prices still continue to go down for another couple of years. We're like, that's okay. It was cheap then. Yeah, it's cheaper now, but I still have a house that long-term is a good value when I think about where the fair value is. I guess I would encourage people to, to think about it more as a longer-term um, journey. Um, there's much less competition now in, in terms of absolute number of buyers. With the big institutional players not active right now, I think it's a good opportunity for others to buy. And it's not as if the big institutional guys are buying everything because it still is a very small piece of the overall bucket. But if you have fewer people out there buying because interest rates are higher and you're willing to stomach it, then um, I think it's interesting. I think one interesting strategy is to either you know, just buy and then say I'm going to refinance in a couple of years. And that's good. You can also um, buy down your mortgage, you know, pay a few points up front and get a lower interest rate. And that's what, what some people are doing today. Um, so, you know, you could buy your mortgage down into the fours. You pay some money up front. You're like, okay. And I'm just using that as a negotiating ploy with my seller. And I'm just getting that. I'm asking for this discount off the list price. And if you could get to this price, I'll buy it. And then you're locked in at a more reasonable mortgage rate. So um, there's ways to ways to skin it. I think sometimes um, people get too scared by where rates are. I think people are, are now, I think, starting to become more active and say, yeah, r- r- rates aren't going to, I don't lo- love a 6.5% rate or whatever, but probably not going to be there forever. And if I could get the house... Then I'm looking at the delta between that and where my refi is going to be, and I'm just factoring that into my bid strategy. And I'm not, by the way, I don't have to bid 15 or 20% over asking price either. Now I'm bidding a little bit below asking price, and maybe I could catch a motivated seller. Yeah, okay. I love those strategies. That's really a, that's really a, a great way to look at it. And it seems to me like the smart investors know these uh options that they have and, and but but maybe some novices and maybe some big institutional money are what's taken off the margins of the competition and the people who are left in the middle are um, the operators the long-term operators 
And that's probably healthy for the market, I suppose. I think so. Um, are you seeing any of the big, and I don't know if you could talk about this directly, but if, are you seeing any of the big institutional guys who've built up these massive portfolios over the years? Are, are they, any of them saying, we want to get out before the, it crashes? Or like, are you seeing any kind of thing like that from any of those? No, honestly, not a single one. We know them all. And um, they have a lot of conviction long-term about it. Now, one, in fairness, that's their business and that's their strategy. So um, they could, in theory, say, I'm going to liquidate all these houses and get out, but not not a single one of them uh, believes that, that that would be the right strategy. I um, think they're not all buying very aggressively. Some of them are starting to buy on the margins or at least make offers, but long-term, they're all very constructive about it. And, and what I am seeing is more and more um, new capital monitoring the space interested in figuring out how to get into it at the right time. And that's new capital uh, like this spring? No, this is new capital that might come in back half of this year or next year. So long-term capital that they're not going to sort of catch a falling knife, but loves the macro uh, play with U.S. housing. And when you think about it, we we look at all the challenges of, of housing, but when you look at it relative to pretty much every other asset class in real estate, it compares pretty favorably. Um, it's the most liquid. There's The beauty of, of single-family rental is you've got two ways you can sell it. You could sell it on a cap rate basis to an investor. You could sell it to an owner-occupant. And so so it's almost like an apartment that's mapped for condo, right? You could, you could rent it or you could sell it, right? So there's this built-in optionality. You look at the office sector, very challenged. A lot of people worry about retail because of online distribution still very popular. Hotels are cyclical. Um, it can be very good if you get it at the right part of the cycle. But when you multifamily could get overbuilt um, it much more easily than single family rentals. It's a lot harder to build hundreds of thousands of houses than it is hundreds of thousands of units of, of apartments. And they're largely substitutes for each other. Um, and, and those markets are quite distinct. You, you don't see a lot of overlap between apartment dwellers and single-family rental uh, renters. So um, you do see that there's been a lot of vertical development in, in um, apartments that's going to cause, I think, some softness there. So there's a lot to like about single-family rentals, it, you know, just from a macro level. And I think we're seeing that. Um, and the other thing about it is, it's the most accessible real estate asset class for individual investors as well. People can understand it. It's pretty straightforward. It's historically been kind of difficult to do because the financing is not easy and there's a lot of paperwork and it's kind of complicated in the management side. So that's where I think there's now service providers who can help with a lot of that stuff. There's a lot more data than there used to be. Um, there's still not great financing options. We're sort of Working on that, I was actually on, on the phone with someone from Fannie Mae earlier today, talking to them and encouraging them to lean in and start to offer more financing products for the middle market, which they don't do today. Um, if you're a really big owner, you get really good financing. If you're an individual owner and you want to buy one to 10 homes, pretty good financing, Fannie and Freddie programs. If you want to own 10 to 1,000, pretty crappy. And there's a lot of people who would like to migrate, you know, small business owners, if you will, who'd like to build portfolios beyond that 10 and have access to kind of more robust and attractive financing. And I think there's a way 
there's a really good story there to, to help build wealth amongst minorities and kind of uh, parts of the population that historically have not had great housing access. I think there's a really interesting um, kind of virtuous circle that could be that could be um, achieved there with some some better financing in that that could be an on ramp for for lots of folks there. That's that is really encouraging. I always love the the taking a step back from the the like, hey, you know, we're we're buying houses to get a better, you know, yield on this thing too. Like what are what are some positive impacts on society that this work has and, and like some opportunities that are in front of us? I tell you, absolutely. I mean, you've known me long enough, Mike. That's a big part of what I think about. But but rental housing is an important part, I think, of the housing stock in the United States. Not everybody can afford to buy a house, at least not right now. And some people just like the flexibility of renting. And today, especially with today's interest rates, I think John Burns has done some research. It's something like $800 or $1,000 more to pay a mortgage on the same price home that you, versus your rent. It used to be they were kind of at parity in a lot of places. And now with rates higher, it's... Um, a lot of people just priced out of buying. So the more, so one of the things I was talking to the folks at Fannie about is think about all those owners of those rental homes. Those are people, right? Only 3% of the single family, of the 20 million single family rentals are owned by the big institutions. 97% are owned by smaller owners. So by, by enabling more people to be able to own those homes, you are promoting housing ownership. It's just they're owning homes that other people rent. And you're providing a product, an affordable product that people can live in and, and they need. And by doing all these things, we can improve the quality of the housing stock. We can provide a better service to them by promoting professional. One of the good things that all the big operators do is I think they generally do a very good job at the property management piece. Um, they have brands to protect. They have technology to help be responsive. Um, all those things. Um, that's not universally the case with mom and pop landlords. They they might self manage. They may live somewhere else. Um, so the more that we could promote the use of best practices and software and technology and things like that for that other ninety seven percent, I think the better experience there will be for others. Um, you know, the big the Big operators follow fair housing, for example. That's not universally the case with every mom and pop landlord. It should be, right? So more and more of these things, if we can continue to take some of the best that we've learned from the institutions, and that's kind of like part of our mission at Roofstock is let's take that technology and let's make it open to a much broader array of, of people, um, to get the best of breed technology and all that, um, then I think that does sort of democratize access. And I think it is good for society. That's terrific. So you painted a, a broadly bullish uh, view on, uh, on real estate investment, single family investment in particular. Um, and, but one thing that strikes me is that we have a lot more investors and a lot more investment owned properties than we have had in the past. Um, like, you know, in previous recession cycles. So um, what are, what are risks or what happens 
that might change that view? What what are things that like uh, you know what what might we run into? Like what happens in a big job loss recession? Are, you know what what kind of what kind of risks are we seeing? Are we facing? Yeah, so it, it's interesting. There's some positives and negatives to investors, and I'll give you like I mentioned one earlier that investors put a floor on housing in 2012, which was really important. Who knows how far housing would have dropped before you know became really cataclysmic? You have, I think, support right now on a yield basis. Now that there are professional investors who I mentioned will buy a 6% yield in Phoenix all day long. Um, prices in, in the price points that investors like, which is call it, you know, 150,000 to 400,000, kind of that range, they can get that sort of yield. There's, there's real downside protection on the home price. That provides a floor for everybody's value, which I think is a, generally a good thing. I think that will, that will help there be much less downside risk to the vast majority of owners that are those aren't rental properties that the owner occupied. Still, two thirds of the people own homes. Um, you know, it's interesting if you look at the stats. We're we're kind of at an eight year high of home ownership percentage. We've talked about all of this. You know, all these investors coming in and buying up the properties. We're sitting at what about sixty six percent home ownership today. It was sixty three percent. You go back seven or eight years. So while all the investors have been coming in, amazingly, the owner occupied, the, the percentage of homes that are owned um, by homeowners has gone up. So they can sort of peacefully coexist. So I, I think um, in a big job loss recession, um, they're going to be more renters, right? It, it, if you can't service your mortgage, you need to sell your home. Um, you, you may not be in a position to buy, so you may you know, need to rent or you may need to move to find a job, um, assuming that uh, the people do go back into offices um, at some point, which I think is starting to happen. Um, So, you know, there's some kind of, I I guess my point is there's some kind of offsetting influences there. If there's a big, if there's a big job loss recession, it'll put pressure, downward pressure on rents and should put downward pressure on pricing, downward pressure on demand. Um, to some degree. Uh, so home price appreciation should definitely slow and in some cases go down. But I don't see it. it I could be wrong. I, I, it's, I think it's very unlikely that there's going to be a massive correction in home prices. Now, if very different from, say, office where or you know, commercial in general, where we have a trillion and a half dollars of, of commercial mortgages coming due in the next couple of years, and rates are going to be twice as much, and, and values are down. Um, that's going to be a bloodbath. So I wouldn't want to be in that space. When you look at housing compared to that, it feels safer. Um, and um, you know, again, there's there's risk with any investment. And um, I personally like housing because of the the fundamental supply demand dynamic we talked about, and the fact that people need a place to live. It's it's very much kind of a utility, and not in a utility sense, but you know, seeing you see what I'm saying. Everyone needs a place to live, so the fundamental demand for a rental home goes way up in some of these downside scenarios. So during that the, the great financial crisis, I've got a great slide that shows prices going down every year for five years and rents 
not going down during that period. So real, really sticky. And the reason for that was there were a lot of people who needed to rent. And I think the same thing could happen here where you might see some softness in demand of people able to buy, but you'd probably see a spike in demand. And I think you'd see houses still being full and, and maybe rents coming down a little bit or being flattish for a while. That's uh, that's those are great insights. By the way, when uh, when you that at that moment when you say you and your buddies say, "Hey, time to buy office buildings," you you call me. I'm in. <laughs> I'm in when when Gary says he's doing it. I'm in. That's the moment I'm in, I'm in with. It may be a while, but yes. Yeah, it may be a while, but when it when it happens, I I'm there. <laughs> it, you know, I'm waiting for someone to come up with the magic formula to convert them to residential. You know, it's it's one of those things that. So sort of the holy grail out there. You've got all this excess office space that no one knows what to do with and a shortage of housing. But it's really, unfortunately, very hard to do in, in most instances. It is. And, and it's uh, uh, I think we have not at all uh, spent any time with the real implications of of people never going back to the office again. And, you know, how many I'm in downtown San Francisco and how many of the neighboring buildings are paid for, but unoccupied. And that still has to, there's a lot to shake out there still. Um, let's do a, uh, one last set. Let's talk about, we talked a little bit about recession, but let's talk about your forecast. And, and I don't know if Roofstock has, uh, you know, official forecasts about what you think is happening with rates, recession, inflation for the year. Um, what do you think happens next there? Yeah, so uh, this would be, uh, Gary Beasley's thoughts, not Roofstock's thoughts. We don't have official thoughts on this. Um, my, my own personal view, and I, um, Mike, I think I might have shared a LinkedIn post that I did, or you might have seen it, on, on CPI in general. And, and if you look at the way CPI is calculated, it's, it's a, a, a simple sum of the prior 12 months. You take the 12 monthly numbers, you add them together, that's the annual CPI. So if you have 0.5 for 12 months in a row, you add it up at 6%, right? Um, what's, what's, you've seen rates, CPI come down for a few months now. What Interestingly, when you look over the next four months, three of the highest months of inflation we've had in this cycle, all over 1%, 1% or greater, are dropping out of the calculation. And we're going to be replacing those with some new ones. And so I did some forecasts in that in that post. I think we're going to see rates, the CPI go from say, you know, six percent where it is today by to say the four percent range, just the way the math works, because it's going to be replaced by 0 0.3, 0 0.4, maybe even 0.5, and you're getting rid of a 1.0 or 1.2. So what's what's that mean? Who cares? Well, the Fed cares, and a lot of people care when CPI starts to show a downward trend. And you layer on the impact of the banking crisis, which the best I can tell, these regional and local banks have really squeezed their lending uh, already. They're not making the loan. So, again, real problem with the commercial refi because none of these local banks and regional banks are going to be participating in those refis. So, so you're gonna, it's another 50 basis points equivalent, I think, of like rate increases. So I think Chairman Powell will be able to look to this CPI declining clearly, weakness coming out of the bank failures, and I think we're starting to see a little bit of moderation in the labor market. All these things to me indicate that there's going to be license for the Fed to stop raising soon. 
maybe they have one more 25 percent or 25 basis point raise, I think. Um, and then I think they're probably done. And then maybe by the end of the year, depending on what's going on with the economy, um, if we're more worried about recession than inflation, maybe we start cutting. So that would be, you know, I think that's not impossible. Um, I don't see continued raises being meaningful from this point. I think that would be too risky. Um, I don't see cuts coming tomorrow, but I do think by year end that's quite possible. I, what that means is I think we're nearing probably peak mortgage rates, and I think we'll see rates start to come down. And, and I think once the market sort of feels like the Fed's cutting, I think, you know, I think we're going to see, I think we could be in a very different place in a year or two for sure in terms of rates. Um, so um, what does that mean? Does it mean we're not going to have a recession? No. Um, I think it's a recession's probably likely in the back half of the year, but um, you know, what that, how that manifests itself in terms of the housing market it, you know, we've had recessions before where real estate has not been as directly impacted. Um, so I think, um, I, I think real estate is going to do okay. Residential is going to do okay over this cycle. It, in particular, if I'm right about rates, which by the way, I could be totally wrong. That's, but I try to have an informed view based on everything that I read. And that's the best view that I can have. There, there's certainly scenarios that where that's not going to be the case. And there are a lot of exogenous factors that you just sort of can't fit what, what's going on with, you know, war in Ukraine and supply chain. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that, that can influence it. But holding all that other stuff constant, that's sort of how I think about it, which is generally, I think, pretty good for housing. Really appreciate that take. One of the other elements of the CPI that is worth uh, watching, I think, is that the housing part of CPI is lagging, and it, it has maybe nine to 12 months old data in there in the, in the current CPI, and we're at the tail end of when things were really rising last year. And so those are even going to go, so it, it could accelerate the downtrend of CPI later in the year. Well, Gary, this has been really, really terrific. Um, I could keep going for a long time, but I really appreciate uh, the, your, your views. I appreciate the, the work that the Roofstock's doing, and, and, uh, and thank you for taking the time with us today. Um, real quick, you, I know you write stuff on LinkedIn. Is that the best place for people to follow you, connect? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Great. And of course, go to Roofstock. If you don't know Roofstock, go to Roofstock. And especially for real estate investors, it's a really tremendous, uh, really fascinating. And, and I, I remember you told the story about being on a plane, sitting next to a guy and watching him invest in real estate next to you sitting on the plane while you talked to him and told him about the business. And I, I can't tell you what his wife said when he landed and he texted me. <laughs> <laughs> it cannot be repeated in a recorded format, but, uh, but you know, you know, whatever it was five, six years later, that was a good deal. That was a great deal. It was a house in Atlanta that he bought for $150,000 and he thought it was the down payment when he was looking over my shoulder. And I said, no, man, that's the whole price. And he said, Oh my God, I could, I could buy a house for 150. And it was a beautiful two story brick house in Atlanta. This was a number of years ago. That house is probably two fifty today, 
But um, he and his wife have been trying to buy a house here in the Bay Area, and it was like six hundred grand for any sort of rental property. He says, "I'm going to buy four of these." She's going to be so happy. <laughs> yeah, and that's the magic. That's really, really terrific. Uh, what a great story. Okay, uh, Gary, thank you so much, everybody. This is the Top of Mind podcast. You know where to find us at altosresearch.com. I'm Mike Simonson. Thank you so much. We'll be back in a week or two. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate leaving a nice review on your favorite podcast app. That helps other people find us as well. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes.